0: Welcome, everyone, to Black Coffee and Theology. Y'all, we have had us a time on this podcast this season, haven't we? We have had we've had us a time. (laughs) Anyways, I am happy to be with you all again. On this particular episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Karen Gonzalez as we talk about her newest book, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants and Our Christian Response to Immigration, right? And so Karen is a writer, a speaker, an immigrant advocate herself uh, who immigrated from Guatemala as a child, and I listen we talked about the book we talked about uh anti-blackness and the latinx community uh we got into some things uh so i'm going to let this conversation play out uh, because it was it was a good one and i love that we were able to riff on some things so please just sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with karen right everyone welcome back to the pod and I am joined by a special guest I know I say that often but I mean it Um, but I have writer and speaker uh, Karen Gonzalez welcome 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 to the podcast
1: thanks so much for having me Robert it's great to meet you virtually (laughs) being a fan of you for so long
0: Oh, thank you. I had one of the joys of hosting two podcasts is I get to meet people. Um, this is the way that I get to meet people that I'm like a fan of. I'm like, man, I really wish I could meet you and in, in interact, but hey, have them on the podcast. Uh, and we're going to talk in a bit about your new book, Beyond Welcome. Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration, Uh, and I had the pleasure of reading this book. Uh, But before that, I like to start out every conversation by saying, who are you? How do you show up in the world and what's important to you?
1: Well, thanks for asking that. It's It's a really good question. So You know, I think it's something I'm still defining and you would think I would know (laughs) by now. But I definitely know that I am an immigrant and that means that I occupy this very liminal space of not being from here nor there because I moved to the US when I was a little girl. When I have the pleasure of spending this summer in Guatemala where I'm from and being asked all the time, where I was from, <laughs> so um, so we think that that is part of who I am, is living in, in between uh, the liminality, and that identity has been really formative for me, the idea of belonging to two cultures, but not fully belonging in either.
0: I like that. I like that. Thank you. Um, hmm, that space in between. Uh, I, I'm i curious about that, but uh, we, we, we will get into that in a second. Um, so from your book, I want to set the tone for our conversation and read a quote from page 67 that really uh, stood out to me. And you wrote, Much of the Western world displays an unwelcoming posture towards immigrants in need. And much of this hostility has been exacerbated by political leaders intent on scapegoating immigrants for their country's problems. And so you wrote this book in a decidedly heated time, especially in terms of immigration, immigration reform, There are a lot of ideologies flying around. We saw how Haitians were treated at the border recently. We've seen how immigrants have been bused and uh, put on planes and weaponized. Their identities have been weaponized. Uh, And so my question to open our talk up is why was it important for you to write this book and why was it important to write it now?
1: So one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book is that there is a sense when people feel like, well, I already care about immigrants. I'm not against immigration. And so that's sort of the end of the conversation for them. They're already for it. And so there's no need to think about it anymore or do anything else. So I really wanted to push people beyond that, because I feel that moving beyond that benefits, not just immigrants, but all people who are on the margins. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote it. But another is that these are a lot of the topics that I feel are important to engage in immigration. So whenever I go speak somewhere on immigration, People are always like, well, what can I do? Where can I serve? And how can I get involved? People focus on that. And I understand that. And I appreciate it. But also, I think before people engage, I think people should focus on, well, what do I, who am I? And what do I really think about immigration? Like, do I need to be changed before I go and engage people who are in vulnerable situations? Because I can do a lot of harm if I'm not and so that's what it really what I wanted to get at this book is about being not doing like it's about our own personal uh, need for transformation and then also it addresses more of the okay so now that you're welcome here are some things you need to undo that you have learned from our culture
0: I love that and Something I love about the way that you go about that is throughout the book that you are centering these marginalized voices and these voices that are non-dominant, right? And you're trying to center the experiences of immigrants and both now in our our day, some of your own story and uh, biblical passages that point towards immigration and marginality. Right. And I loved how you wove that throughout the whole book. And so, give me a thought on how, like that, on writing in that way, like centering voices in that way, the choice to put so much of your own story in the thread of the biblical story and weaving um, people's thoughts that way.
1: Yeah. So, I really am a storyteller. That's, how I really write. And so for me, that was never a question. I think the question for me was how much of my story to engage in and weave within Um, when I am experiencing a little bit of a vulnerability hangover after having having put so much of the story out there. Because the stories that I put in this book are really
0: not, they're more nuanced and complex. They're not- They are-
1: Especially in
0: the last book that I was like, whoa, we got (laughs) peaking back. Yeah,
1: like I wanted to address the anti Blackness and anti Indigeneity that I grew up with, both in my family and in the culture and in Latinx communities. You know, this is something very common and never gets really talked about in the narrative. Um, And so I wanted to bring that out and say, this is a big part of the problem, too. I wanted to bring out some of the issues around the immigrant narratives that are upheld about everyone being super hardworking and keeping their head down. Um, And I wanted to bring out some of this complexity (laughs) and I knew that it would mean sharing some of my own story because I wanted to model this. Um, And so I shared some of the not great things, you know, about uh, me and my family mostly because I'm like, well, this is what I believe that I need to put it in, in this book as well. And Mm -hmm. these are stories that need to be told. And so, yeah, it was a very um, deliberate choice. I think it was still really hard um, to do specifically, you know, you think about things about your parents, you know, I mentioned some of the things my parents imparted to me that weren't great. And I also had to process, you know, for example, I talked a lot about how much anti-blackness there is in Latinx communities. And part of the way that I, part of the reason that I realized this happens is because the reason they want you to marry into whiteness, to align yourself with whiteness, it's because they don't know how to disrupt those systems where ultimately they just think, your parents think, well... I need to teach them to survive in this world. And this is the best way. This is how I know how, because I don't know how to change this. I don't know how to make the world more just and good. And so here, do this, you know, this is what I want you to do and believe and move forward with this. And so, but of course it's not, you know, there are, there are ways of dealing with it. And I, I understand, you know, my mom was literally dirt poor from a village in Guatemala. I know she'd did not think a lot about ideas about being and um, transformation because so much of her life for so long was just about surviving, and so I understand why she didn't have the time to entertain these kind of thoughts um, but the thing is I do I don't have to keep perpetuating these these toxic systems mm-hmm. and so um and yet this is what we've seen, right when you know there, there was this LA City Council leak of a conversation.
0: I was going to bring that up Wow, keep Mm -hmm. going. Yeah.
1: And these are people who are powerful, who have means and resources. They don't have to perpetuate these systems to survive. Mm -hmm. And yet they do. They just keep going with them. They don't question them. And this is where I feel like, okay, no, this is where it becomes um, wrong. This is when you're just... Becoming complicit in oppressive systems. And so, you know, you hear this the woman and the things that she was saying when she thought nobody could hear her, which is really when we are who we are, right? <laughs> when we think uh, no one's around to hear. And it's very, very explicit. And this is very common in, in Latinx communities overt anti-indigeneity, overt racism. And the desire to keep aligning yourself with whiteness. This is where the term mestizo comes from. Mm-hmm. The idea that I'm mixed race, The part that I'm proud of is the European part. Even though yeah. the European part means surely my ancestresses were probably raped mm-hmm. um, by Europeans. And so, yeah, it's a very sick and toxic system. And there's a theologian, uh, Oscar Garcia Johnson, who says it's the colonial wound that we have been inflicted with, and we keep perpetuating it generation after generation, instead of healing it
0: and putting uh, an end. You're bringing up so many good points of, of things that I wanted to talk about and things that are sitting with me from the book, but I I think, uh, I love that you kind of frame these things that you learn from your parents especially from your mother as you know the survival tactics and these survival uh thoughts and i think of uh dr yolanda pierce's book uh in my grandmother's house where she talks about um the lessons even though they might have been legalistic and harsh from church uh black church grandmothers but they were put in place to protect a generation of young black girls from a harsh world uh, in which black women are not dominant, right? And that's the only way they knew is if we can be harsh and protect you, at least you won't be uh, harmed by the world. And so I, I, I'm sitting with your thoughts around the, the, the things that your parents passed down to you being framed as how to survive in this world. And the anti-Blackness, I'm glad that you illuminated it because I think that that is is a hard thing among, you know, in the BIPOC (laughs) portion of, (laughs) of conversations, that is the elephant in the room. And although your book was like centering the voice of immigrants, I felt so much resonance as a Black person on American soil that- so much of the conversation resonates within all non-white people. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. That was challenging to write because I knew that it was, it's one of those conversations where people say, no, that's between us. That's not for other people, Mm -hmm. you know, to consume, but I'm like, no, I think we need to put this, you know, and it's interesting because in Los Angeles there used to be, a coalition and a lot of solidarity between black and brown communities uh, working together until it was the brown communities who broke away from it and said, oh, we want to focus on our own. You know, we want to we, we want to uh, lift our own leaders. And it's interesting. That's exactly what that city councilwoman was trying to say. You know, part of the non-racist conversation was she was trying to compete with black communities for uh, leadership and resources, mm-hmm. and it's part of white supremacy that scarcity mentality.
0: It's true, and a point that you brought up early in the book, you talk about how assimilation being kind of the goal uh, that's put before immigrants, and and you talk and you name it as that assimilation is rooted in white supremacy. Uh, and You said that, very blunt, bold. And I think that that um, thought to assimilate, that thought to keep your head down and just be part of the dominant crowd is the image that many are trying to be conformed into. And it's in that place that we have to dominate one another, right? We have to get all the resources. We have to figure out ways to assimilate. So talk about assimilation uh, specifically, because I loved reading your thoughts on that from your location?
1: Well, the first thing is that nobody really teaches you to assimilate or tells you to do it. You mm-hmm. just start to realize that when you erase parts of yourself or diminish them, minimize them, people are more comfortable and they're more welcoming yes. and they draw you inside. And so this becomes reinforced to you. Oh, the more I do this, the more I'm welcome. And so you, mm-hmm. keep, you continue to do it. And the thing about um, assimilation is that people don't just assimilate. People think of it as a good thing. Like, oh, you learn the language and the culture, and that's a good thing. Problem is you also assimilate to ideologies, to systems of oppression. Yep. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what about people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio? What about Latinos for Trump? And I'm like, well, yeah, people assimilate to systems of oppression as well I'm not shocked that these things exist or people like that exist because this is what people are pushed toward you know and I have relatives who have really wanted to align themselves with whiteness because of the promises you know the promises and the they think they're going to have privileges right if they can align themselves there and so assimilation might seem like No big deal, like something desirable, but it's actually incredibly harmful, not just to the person who is now denying their identity as an image bearer of Christ, who was made brown or indigenous or what have you, and who was born in a particular culture with a particular language. But now you're also adopting oppressive systems as part of who you are. And you're perpetuating them. You're not disrupting them in any way. You're accepting these things as, oh, in order to belong and be included, this is part of who I am too. And so that's what's really incredibly harmful about assimilation. And ultimately, it is about white supremacy. It is about, okay, this culture is superior and better. And so I'm going to align myself with it and deny everything else. And so it is really harmful and it insidiously harmful because it seems like a good thing uh, to some people, but it's actually extremely harmful. And in the book I draw it out, I compare the story of Joseph. And it's really interesting because I learned about Joseph You know, when you're a kid, you learn a Joseph story, how (laughs) Joseph's brothers were awful, and then they sold him into slavery and he suffered so much. And the verse that you always think of is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? And this is encapsulates uh, Joseph's story. But if you look deeper at what Joseph did in Egypt is he became Pharaoh's second in command. And what he did is he helped Pharaoh create a food monopoly. He helped Pharaoh to enslave Egyptians. Egyptians gave up their grain. They gave up their land. They gave up their very selves just to survive the years of famine, right? And then other people, including his family, came from Canaan and ended up enslaved in this same system. And Joseph, who was a Hebrew, was the architect of this entire oppressive system. And that's what happens when you assimilate. You don't really question, uh, wait, who is this good for? Is this the common good? Yeah, mm-hmm. what is it that i'm that I'm perpetuating here? What is it that I'm supporting? and and I know Joseph's story is very complex. You know, he was enslaved. He suffered a lot. But there are layers in that story that you read that are really interesting. Like they change his name. They give him an Egyptian name, Egyptian wife. He speaks Egyptian really well because his brothers don't even recognize him and speak to him through a translator. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of elements of culture within that story. And there's also the idea that he doesn't seem to question, wait, what I'm actually doing, how is it going to benefit everyone? And what ends up happening is his own people, including his own descendants, end up becoming enslaved in Egypt until God raises other liberators a few Mm -hmm. generations later. And it's very startling to read the story from that perspective. But it's there. It's in the text.
0: Yeah. And I love that you expanded, you know, what we think about Joseph and when we look at at him in a, in a 360 degree way and look from different angles it is incredibly nuanced and complicated and when we think about that he was the architect of this thing that ended up its ensnaring his own people well that has ramifications for that day and we can see in our day uh when marginalized people uh rise to power it doesn't just because they are marginalized does not mean that they are culturally aware. Uh, It doesn't mean that they cannot uh, increase harm. Actually, with the tools of the oppressors, they can actually maximize the damage both to their own communities and other communities, right? And so that food monopoly uh, cost a lot of people (laughs) a lot in that uh, famine type situation that was set up by this person who was damaged, who was wounded and who was bruised. Right. So. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's why when people think, you know, I, I work in human resources, that's really my day job, but it's really interesting. People always think, Oh, we need to hire people into people of color, into the executive team and into leadership roles, but the kind of person they usually want
0: is not speak someone. <laughs> yeah. on,
1: <laughs> They're looking for a specific kind of person yeah. of color who's very assimilated to white culture and white um, work culture, especially, and who's not going to disrupt anything. They actually just want someone who is a different color. They want a multicolored, <laughs> you know, executive uh, team. They don't really want a multicultural one because mm-hmm. that will be costly to them. They'll get, they'll have to give up control, and comfort, and power. And let's be honest, they don't really want to do that. <laughs> and so yeah, that becomes, um, it, to me, that's a, that's a really interesting dynamic working in human resources and seeing that, but also recognizing the way that, you know, and it's interesting when people ask me about Of course, there's a person of color in every organization who's made it up the ranks. And when people ask about it, to me, um, as someone who works in this field, I always say to them, you know, this doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Either that person uh, is either going to get pushed out if they stand up for marginalized communities, they're either going to get pushed out, kicked out, or they're going to with themselves, or they're just going to assimilate and be able to stay there. And those are the paths, unfortunately. So there's this great quote by Jamar Tisby who says, "You know, a lot of organizations, a lot of Christian spaces have been, if you think about a cake, they've been baked with misogyny, with racism, already inside." Mm -hmm. right and so you can't now take it out of the cake right how do you remove sugar from an already baked cake or if you forgot to put something in the cake once it's baked it's done and so one one of the things I've learned is that when I hear an organization is super diverse or I just don't that doesn't mean anything to me and it's not because I'm trying to be cynical it's because I've seen the truth of what it means to be in that space i've been in that space and i know that it's extremely costly if you go against the grain if you speak up in any way
0: yeah and the same for churches too i don't mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't i don't want to be able, i listen just because there's a diverse amount a cast on the worship team does not mean that this church space is inclusive um, in any way, um, um, especially when the when you go to the staff page and it's, you know, predominantly you know. Um, right. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about um, another uh, biblical uh, thread that you 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 uh, really spoken to beautifully, which is of. Rahab's story. And speaking of centering uh, someone who is marginalized and um, who's an outsider. And I love the way that you wrote about her part in uh, the biblical narrative. And so give us a few nuggets on Rahab's story.
1: Um. Yeah, I love that story. It's probably my favorite story out of all the stories that I talk about from the Bible in the book. Rehab Rahab is this um, very interesting character because the Bible is the story of so many men. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're going to enter the land that they've been promised, this land of Canaan. And Moses is now gone and you have a new leader in Joshua. Suddenly the whole narrative is interrupted to tell you the story of this woman, but not just a woman, she's a sex worker, and she literally lives on the margins of society. Literally, she lives up against the wall, you know. And, um, and the Bible tells you her story, and in the whole chapter, she's in control of the narrative. She's the one driving everyone's passive, even God is passive in the telling of her story. He's the one who has agency, it's driving the narrative, which is really, really critical because she does is something that you would expect that you would not expect because she ends up being invited to be part of the people of the conquering people and I believe that ultimately Rahab is just trying to survive she's seeing the writing on the wall and she's thinking about what my household and me what's going to happen to us and so she just makes a decision That's really based on self-preservation, which is the way poor people have always lived, poor enterprise people, right? With their backs against the wall, Mm -hmm. always think about how am I going to survive this? But she invites these spies from uh, the Israelites to come, uh, she hides them in her home and she lies to the king and the king. Through the through the messengers, she lies to them and says, No, they're not here. And she makes them promise that they're gonna protect her, you know. And so it's to me, the fact that they include her, that they welcome her into their clan is really interesting because she lies, she's a trickster, she's a sex worker, she's exactly the kind of person you would think, yeah, I don't want her to be part of my new nation (laughs) that I'm trying to build, right? You would think that they would not want someone like her not only does she become part of their community after the conquest she lives among them with honor they don't marginalize her they actually keep their promise to her and she marries into their community and she ends up in the lineage of Jesus and this I found really interesting because I read a lot about her story all those church fathers were so uncomfortable with the fact that a sex worker was the lineage of Jesus they try to Change her profession. They <laughs> try to say she was an innkeeper. They try to say she was a businesswoman. <laughs> but what makes her ideal uh, for the role that she plays is that she was a sex worker, and a lot of men went through her place and she was privy to a lot of information. And so that's what makes her ideal. And I think her inclusion in the community is really beautiful because it even recalls the Passover because she hangs that red cord from her house and that's how yeah. they know to pass over her not to destroy her household and so it's it's really interesting and what I drew a comparison of her to the idea of the good immigrant because here yeah. she was this uh, this uh, foreign person who was a sex worker and a trickster and she gets welcomed and even against God's own law, you know, the, the law said not to, you know, not to welcome foreign women <laughs> and all these, and they even disobey all of that and welcome her. And, but the way that now we hold up immigrants, like there's a one narrative about a sort of good immigrant person, and that's the kind of immigrants we want these people who are hardworking, who are essential but invisible. They keep their head down. They don't collect public benefits. They're here legally somehow, even though the system is completely designed to exclude them. They're somehow here legally. And we have these narratives that are unspoken, but they're real about who a good immigrant is and who is not a good immigrant. And It's extremely harmful to people. And I talk about the way it played out in my own life, but the way I see it play out also on a larger level, on a global level, right? The way that, for example, the narrative of the dreamers, um, DACA recipients is held up. There are these good, innocent immigrants, but their parents, they're terrible people who cross the border illegally. They're held up as these good, innocent people. And you know you have to wonder how good or helpful that is to hold up these people against their own parents to demonize them. But we have these narratives that exist. And unfortunately, immigration advocates also perpetuate these narratives because these are the stories that get told. And it's always centered on like brown immigrants, right? Um, a family of people from Latin America. And the truth is we have more migration from Asia now than from anywhere else. In fact, like one in five South Koreans is undocumented, one in eight South Asians, Indian is undocumented. We have more migration from Asia than from Latin America at the moment. And we have a growing Black immigrant population as well. Never gets talked about. So these are... oh frequently erased from the narrative altogether. And all we talk about are these, you know, brown immigrant families who are hardworking, who do essential labor for us. And so it's a very harmful narrative all around. Um and it really, I feel like it really dehumanizes people because it turns them into laborers instead of just human beings. And so I don't like the narratives. A lot of immigration advocates, because it works, use economics uh, to talk about immigration. We need the labor of immigrants. They build things that we need. We need their agricultural yeah. uh, labor. And they never talk about the fact that we have a shared humanity. and We should care about people because they're human beings like we are. And that should what we lead with because their hope is, Oh, we'll just lead with economics and then advance the narrative. But as we know, people don't advance the narrative. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then you end up looking at, at people as human resources. Um, and that does not help them or their communities. And so, yeah, I love the narrative of, of Rahab because there's something about her that is powerful in the, in the way that she, feels like she belongs and she deserves to survive and be part of this community and it doesn't matter when she was a sex worker it doesn't matter that she lied and she was a trickster
0: and I loved that you used her story to one expand her story and then use it to push against this notion of the good immigrant right and um I like in the book when you say uh I don't know any good immigrants and, um, and, and just the, the, the uh, resonance that that has. It's um, this notion that immigrants should have this test of moral purity, um, which is interesting because we don't subject American citizens to that same moral test. Um, but immigrants should just put their head down and be of the utmost virtue and just be grateful to receive droplets of mercy, which is sick. And I think the thing that I think about when I I think about uh, how people try to advocate, I love that you brought it up, is we need people to clean our, our places. Who else would do it? And thinking that that is progressive or that that is helpful and really that's further dehumanizing because there's this question within me that, Uh, essentially do people have to um, do they have to do a certain amount of things to prove their worth in order to be part of our communities and the way that we talk about immigrants is the way that we talk about disabled people and it shows that we don't think that human bodies are image bearers especially in the church we don't believe that they're worthy of love, acceptance, and care, um, and it doesn't matter to me if an immigrant becomes a doctor, a lawyer, or their occupation shouldn't even be part of the, the question, right, and so, but often it is, and so I like that you brought up this notion of the good immigrant, uh, because it causes us to think about what, what narratives do we believe about immigrants, and what stories do we believe, so I love that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think these narratives don't just hurt immigrants. This idea of test of moral purity before you can care about people. Yeah, and I, I see it every time a person of color, especially a black man, is killed by police. Yes. I see it and people are just praying and hoping this man does not have a police record, even mm. though it's not a capital crime to have a police record. I saw this, I live in Baltimore, and I saw this happen when Freddie Gray died, that people were justifying his death by saying, well, you know, he had a criminal record, he'd been arrested for drug possession. I'm like, okay, that's not a capital crime. It doesn't mean he deserved to die in the back Mm. of a police van. It, that doesn't, but anyway, people pull out this like good person narrative every time. I see it when, in, in all different ways with marginalized people. I see it with, um, for example, when women get up to preach, like if the woman isn't a spectacular preacher and pastor, oh, see, this is why women shouldn't preach. Uh, it's it's there's this sense of you have to be perfect to be able to uh, to elicit compassion and care from people. It's dehumanizing to all communities on the margins. I see it with people experiencing homelessness. There's, these narratives are extremely damaging. And in the book, I draw it out with immigrants, but I see it a lot. I see it all around.
0: And it's harmful. And, and for me, in my own, from my own social location, I have resisted the urge when finding out of, about a Black man being killed by the police I resist posting about, you know, the goodness in their life or that, you know, they were a budding father. They were a budding artists. They were, look, see, this was a good black man. And the thing that harms me is what if he wasn't? Would would you care? Um, I, I don't have to go back to his Facebook from, you know, 2004 and see the one wrong thing that he did or that he was a Nobel prize winner black men deserve love right we deserve care we deserve nurturing and sheltering right we don't deserve when we commit crimes to be executed um unanimously right or uh so yeah i love that that notion right um that dehumanizing that judging uh that harms all of us right Mm -hmm. and it's most uh It's most egregious because we are, quote unquote, a Christian nation. Um, (laughs) And uh, you would think that we would have better uh, viewpoints on this, but we do not. Um,
1: Right. The sense that we don't earn anything, right, that it's just given Mm -hmm. to us. It's like a tenet of Christianity and yet not extended to people on the margins.
0: Truly. I wanted to bring up this last point from your book. Hmm. On page 78, um, you say, Jesus's hospitality involves deliberate listening, learning, and engagement. That is the hospitality that Jesus gave, and that is the hospitality he affirmed when he received it. And dropping down, you say, when hospitality is not reciprocal, those belonging to the dominant culture unconsciously begin to think of immigrants as having less in every way uh and then you talk about immigrants do bring a lot to our society our communities they might not do it in the ways that you want but um yeah just that hospitality notion that you were teasing out from jesus's life and so thoughts on that um yeah yeah
1: Well, it's interesting to me, Jesus didn't have anything, right? We know the Bible says he didn't have a place to lay his head. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he could invite people to dinner parties (laughs) um, or host anything himself when he doesn't even have a home. But there's a way that he engaged with people that was hospitable. And I think about the story of the woman at the well in John 4. You know, she's a woman. She's a foreigner. He didn't need to engage her at all. And yet he sat and had a conversation with her and listened, and there was a a genuine engagement with her. Um, And that is hospitality, too. You don't have to have fancy dwellings to be able to offer people hospitality. Um, And I see this a lot when people want to engage with a marginalized community in need, so I saw it a lot, for example, with immigration, with refugee resettlement, there was a lot of volunteers from churches that assist with that. And some of the stories you hear about the things that they'll say, um, is you, you can tell that they don't respect the dignity and humanity of immigrants, that they've learned to see them as just objects of charity. And so people would say things to me like, oh, they're buying a TV you know, with their money and they, that's a waste of money. They shouldn't do that. You know, they're poor, they're living in, you know, an apartment. And my question was always like, well, do you have a TV? Cause I have a TV and it's not a need for anyone. It's not like I need it to live. <laughs> it is nice to have. And why are you depriving this immigrant family of one, the dignity of making their own choices with their resources and two of their need to relax And rest and be entertained and escape for a little bit with some Netflix, you know, (laughs) why aren't they allowed the privilege of this, but you are, I am. And so it, that's the way that it sneaks in. You see it in the way that people question, you know, I see this a lot with people experiencing homelessness. People will say, well, I'm not giving them any money. They're just going to use it, you know, to buy drugs. And I'm like, well, once you give money to someone, it's not your money anymore. It's not your business, what they do with it. Um, yet you want to have a say in that somehow, right? You want to, so it's not really giving money away if you want control over how it's used or how it's spent. And so, I really think it's critical to engage with people in a different way so that you um, you don't end up adopting these toxic narratives. And so Jesus didn't have anything to give. But he listened and he learned and he engaged with people. And this is something that people can do also. You listen and learn and engage. You don't just think about the stuff that you're giving or your time, that this person has something to offer to you as well. And so I I tell a story in the book about my experience with this when I was in Kazakhstan and that I really had thought I was coming there right to serve. And
0: Is this about Luke 15? Huh? Is this going to be about the prodigal son story?
1: No, no, no. This is the the story of the the woman who, the woman who had really lavish hospitality, but that's not what I learned from her.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What I learned from her, she taught me a lot about the culture. Um, We came there supposedly, right? To serve her, but she, at her table, I listened and I learned from her and I realized how much people have to offer, it shouldn't have taken that for me to learn that, but it did. And so I wanted people to really question the way we think about not just services for immigrants, but services to any marginalized community, because I see this in so many different ways with people who work um, with people who are on the margins, just denying their humanity in very subtle ways by making decisions, by not letting them have input in not really thinking that they're full image bearers of God who have gifts and talents and faith and culture and all of these things to offer as well. And so this is really harmful kind of hospitality when you're, then it becomes more of like what you see in the Bible that Jesus judged a lot. He's a patron client sort of relationships, right? Mm. Um, Jesus didn't, Jesus actually said, no, 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 invite the person who is poor into your table, right? So
0: I love that. I had a womanist professor, Dr. Chapman Lape, who would say often let people speak for themselves, right? Like our goal in providing care is not to provide what we think someone needs or to assert our dominance uh, in our viewpoint, but to let. People speak for themselves, like what they want, what they desire, what they need, and so I hear that in in what you're saying is no. This immigrant family, this homeless, they can speak their own needs, and I want to control it because whatever issues I have going on in here, <laughs> um, um, there's ego, that's uh, a god complex, that's whatever. But they can speak for themselves, and yeah, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's. Yeah, we want to reinforce that in people. We want to let them know that we recognize their God-given humanity and everything they have to offer. And so, yeah, I, I often think the stories that I hear about immigrants, the only thing people say is like, oh, they have so little and they were so generous with it. And I'm like, really? Or, you know, they're so happy. And I'm like, really? So are you willing to trade places with them then?
0: They're like, no, um, like, they're, they're like, no, don't be, don't be wild. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to learn that much. Yeah. Which yeah. yeah.
1: Terrible. That's just, that's just bananas. Don't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, I am. Um, yeah. It's back to the Luke 15 thing. Right. So mm-hmm. no, the Luke 15 was to me, um what you were asking about. Yeah. I not was like, I, just- I, w-
0: I want to, he- I was like, I lied. I said that was my last question, but the Luke 15, I actually want to hear a bit about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is a, uh, the parable of, of the prodigal son, which, you know, is a really powerful story. And we're used to thinking about it in our culture in one way, right? You have this sort of a gospel story of a person recognizing he's wrong and coming back and seeking forgiveness from the father. And I read that story when I was with Russian and Kazakh students and recognize, oh, they don't see that in the story. <laughs> they see it as a story of, um, oh yeah, there was a famine because in their collective memory as a people, famine is really a big deal because of the siege of St. Petersburg during uh, during World War II. It's it's a really really big deal to them, and that automatically you talk about famine, and that's what they think of is the siege of a city and and the you know thousands upon thousands of people. Who starved to death because of the German surrounding city. Um, so it's a really, it's really interesting to me because that's what they thought of in the story was famine. And they're like, yeah, everybody suffers when there's a famine. I it doesn't cannot. even matter if you're a bad person, you're just going to suffer because there's a famine. <laughs> um, and I was just struck by that. I didn't know what to do with it. I just thought, what's going on here? Like, they're not seeing what they're supposed to be seeing in this story. Uh, And then, of course, I heard from another friend that she had a friend uh, in Ethiopia studying that story with Ethiopian students. And they said, oh, it's because he left his family. He shouldn't have left his family. Of course, you don't go somewhere. Be all alone. Things aren't going to go well for you. You shouldn't leave your family. And so... I'd always been taught, no, there's one message in these stories, and this is the way that you need to read and understand them. And I really imposed that on my friends in Kazakhstan because that's what I had been taught. I didn't realize that my faith, a faith that I'd been taught, carried a culture, and it carried American evangelical culture. And that's what I was trying to impose on them. I thought, this is the one correct reading of the story. And you see this all around. <laughs> You see how much people do this. They think that their reading of the story is true and objective, and it does not carry any cultural biases of any kind,
0: right? Yeah. No, I, one, it's funny. I have studied that passage. I have done much work on that passage. I never saw that there was uh, famine, <laughs> to, literally, until uh, reading yeah. that. I was like, wait, no, it, could, it can't be in there it's it's in the text i have i mean because fam that word famine isn't it doesn't resonate in my my mind and so reading in the book and you know you asking that group you know what what sticks out to you in this parable and someone boldly or comes out and says there's a famine i, I was like whoa i where have i been i've read i've read this passage many many times and that was not even the the scope of any i don't even know that i've read scholarship on the famine part um and and so just thinking about that and how the bible in our biblical trend uh interpretations can impact cultures in the ways that we move thinking that we're going to impose this uh yeah. that That's caused me to reflect deeply. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I see it a lot now. It's easy to recognize once you have eyes, right. You yeah. start seeing it everywhere.
0: Yeah.
1: And I see it a lot in the way that people um, don't recognize at all how much their faith carries their culture, their Christian culture and how much they think, no, this is the right way. And they can't see any other way. To read or think about the Bible, and so that's what they impose on people, and without even realizing, wait, this is this my my culture. And I wanted people to know that the way we read the Bible really has consequences for people on the margins, and the way we don't allow people, or we, you know, call what they're doing or saying wrong. You know, we see this play out on Twitter every day. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> people uh um don't don't recognize this at all but i really saw it when i was reading the bible with people in another culture recognizing that they saw completely different things within the text than i did and they weren't wrong those things were there it's just not things that i paid attention to but we have a very ethnocentric way of reading the bible and unfortunately because in the west you know there's a lot of power both economically and culturally but we still read ourselves as underdogs in the bible right you see people that are really powerful and wealthy reading themselves as the hebrews instead of the egyptians or as you know mary magdalene instead of pontius pilate i'm like no (laughs) you're the person in power in this text you are not the person who is oppressed You know, I I didn't write this in the book, but I experienced this myself when I was there. Uh, A lot of our students thought we were rich. And for a long time, I just said, no, 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 we're not rich. We're just teachers. You know, we don't, we're just normal people. But then I realized, no, we are rich in comparison to the way that people live here and the amount of poverty there is here. We are rich. And when I was there, I started to read the Bible from that perspective. And it was really disturbing um, to do that, which is why people don't do it. You know, they don't want to see themselves in that light, but I realized, wow, I have a lot of one. I have resources. I can leave here at any time and I have this blue passport. I can fly anywhere in the world. They can't do that. In fact, so many of them were learning English so they could migrate to Canada, to the UK, to Australia, the U S. So. It's the first time I really began to wrestle with my location in the text Um, and and really think about the United States and the way that i had been taught to read the Bible. I really feel like one of the reasons people um, reject immigrants is because of this um, idea that they're the poor, that they're the poor in the narrative, rather than the rich. There's a scarcity of resources in the U.S., rather than plentiful resources. Um, And so reading the Bible through the lens of I am the poor instead of I am the rich and the powerful and the oppressor keeps people from really seeing their neighbors in the correct context. So I think it's extremely important. I don't know that, you know, you think of people like John MacArthur and they're not going to start you know, they still see themselves as persecuted because people don't say Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's not persecution, you know? But yeah, it's, it's challenging because people are not, um, it's hard to suddenly start reading the Bible and to see yourself as an oppressor, as mm-hmm. Rome or Babylon or Egypt instead of the Hebrew people. But that's that's who we are as the United States, you know, and other countries know it. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a map of resources around all of the conflicts that the United States has has perpetrated in other countries. And so I was even reading this morning about Nina Simone um and who went on a tour of Africa. You know, she was singing and and apparently the CIA tagged along Uh, unbeknownst to her and were responsible for the coup in the congo that threw that country into turmoil it's still living under today and so yeah it's disturbing to to know that that's who we are but that's the beginning of transformation is telling the truth right about ourselves and when i say our i'm not talking about me and you but the the us you know the white dominant yeah yeah i get that
0: the collective uh us Mm -hmm. i get that i mean we live here so yeah yeah no i love that i listen thank you for coming on the podcast i have enjoyed your book um yeah thank you for this conversation i truly 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 uh it's been a blessing
1: well, thank you, Robert. It's been great to talk with you and to finally meet you. I know. Hey. <laughs> yeah, it's great to talk. and to. Um, yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at three black men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review. Black coffee and theology pod, as well as three black men.